If I were to go to a uh, theater with friends, as I have done uh, in the past, I would found that my friends generally uh, were of one of two categories. Uh, there was the one that wanted to make sure they didn't miss anything. And so if there was a 7.30 show, they wouldn't mind showing up at 7 o'clock and making sure they scouted everything out, had time to get their popcorn and candy and uh, soda and others. And, and others who say, what time does it start? 7.30, well, probably going to be previews and commercials. I'll show up around 8, and if I miss anything, you can just let me know. Uh, how it started. And again, sometimes somebody like that will come in and they'll whisper, uh, not knowing how far along into the story they are, did I miss anything? Well, when they say that, what they're saying is, what happened at the beginning doesn't necessarily matter. What happened at the beginning, I, I can just figure it out. I'll just go along with the ride and eventually I'll figure it out. The question comes in our Bibles, does the beginning matter? You know, sometimes when somebody becomes a Christian and we say to them, uh, when you're going to start, you need to start reading your Bible, rarely do we say, you need to start in Genesis. You need to make sure that you at least read the opening chapters of Genesis before you go to Matthew, before you go to Mark, before you go to John, before you read Romans or Philippians. You need to start at the very beginning because if you don't understand the beginning, then you are going to be lost. Our, our Bibles start quite literally... In the beginning. In the beginning of what? In the beginning of time. In the beginning of our world. Now the verses and chapters that follow from in the beginning God created are viewed by professing believers as either the most necessary foundation for faith and practice or for some a kind of blend of, of history and story or poem or mythology it's trying to explain things not scientifically not historically but trying to give us a spiritual perspective on life that's how some who would claim to be Christians view the opening chapters of Genesis and they say really history starts in Genesis 12 but for those who claim an orthodox faith which includes a view of scripture that says that we believe that it is not only inspired, but that it is without error, a view that does allow for a variety of genres, which does allow for allegory and parable. We nonetheless believe that the early chapters of Genesis, however difficult some of it is to interpret, is indeed history. We confess and believe that God created the heavens and the earth and that it is vitally necessary for all that we believe and for how we live in this world that he specially created men and women in his own image. Now, if you're here today um, uh, and we're not here last Lord's Day, we have begun in this class a series on Christian ethics. And we have chosen to utilize as a foundational text, and I want to explain a little bit, Derek did a little bit, why we're not using a more modern one, though we are going to deal with more modern issues. Uh, we're dealing with what in our circles, or Reformed circles, has been viewed as the classic work uh, on that subject, the book Principles of Conduct by uh, John Murray. Now, it's not a book that's going to deal with a lot of the hot-button issues 
uh, some of the most critical issues that are facing the church today. Uh, if I were to go back and, and say to John Murray, hey, you know, in 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, we're going to be dealing with transgenderism. You'd say, what, what in the world is that? Uh, that that gay marriage is going to be legalized, that there will be such things as in vitro fertilization uh, and a host of other issues, stem cell research or whatever the case might be. He might stare at you cross-eyed and if we were to have the most modern book available in 50 years, what our, what our grandchildren, children and grandchildren are going to be dealing with might stagger us. We may not even be able to imagine or contemplate uh, where things may be going. But there are issues that are facing the church today that do demand that we as God's people understand how to live in this current environment. We do want to be as best we can like the sons of Issachar who had understanding of the times and who knew what Israel ought to do. We are called, I believe, like Dave was said of David, he served God in his generation. And as much as you might like to go back to Little House on the Prairie or something like that, that's not the generation in which we serve God. We might say like Frodo and Lord of the Rings, I wish such days had never come upon us. And I wish, I wish we, we lived in a different time. Well, this is the time that God has given to us and we are the people of God meant to face the challenges of the day and to know how we as God's people are to react as a congregation and even what is our place uh, in society. Now, one of the main benefits of John Murray's book, Principles of Conduct, is that he does give a very important uh, main ethical thread that he says carries us in all of our ethical understandings. There's one major ethical thread that begins in Genesis and goes through uh, to the book of Revelation. And that ethical thread, as we saw last time, is the moral law of God. Now, Murray embraces, and we need to understand this, and I'm, I'm, I debated how much time to get into this today, because I, I do want to do a lot of discussion today, so be ready to interact. Uh, if you don't interact, then I'm not going to have much of a lesson today. Uh, but I do want to lay a few things by way of, of groundwork. Uh, Murray does embrace the classical reform distinctions regarding the threefold division of the law, and what, what's the threefold division of the law? And so moral, ceremonial, and civil. All right, so he embraces these things. So uh, there were ceremonial laws. Our confession of faith very quickly says in chapter 19, and I think it's paragraph 3, God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth uh, divers instructions of moral duties, all which moral laws being appointed only to the time of Reformation are by Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, the only true lawgiver, who, has, uh, who was furnished with power from the Father for that, in abrog uh, uh, for that end, sorry, abrogated and taken away. So that we don't, when we're talking about the law of God, we're not talking about the ceremonial law. And then regarding the civil law, now this is a more hotly debated topic today, and we will need of necessity to talk about this at certain points. The civil law 
was which ordered Israel in the days of its theocracy. Now, that's the classic reform position. That's the position of our church. It says, in, again, chapter 19, to them also he gave sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people, not, ob- not obliging any now by virtue of that institution. That is because it was given to Israel their general equity only being of moral use. Again, there's a lot we could say about that. That's not my purview this morning. Uh, He also held to what is called the threefold use of the law. Anybody want to... What is the threefold use of the law? All right, as as a tutor, uh, it is... uh, The terms are sometimes used the uh, pedagogical use of the law as a teacher, uh, teaches us about God and his holiness, exposes our sin. That's one. What's, what's another use of the law, of the moral law? Okay, that's actually really getting to the first one. Mirror showing God's character, God's holiness, our sinfulness. A second is civil, and that is laying out a standard and... and, and shining light to the world, uh, exposing deeds of darkness. This is what is righteous. This is what is true. This is what is right to convict the consciences of men. And, and in some cases, it's also been used to help order various laws in society. Some of those are being taken away, obviously. But, you know, things that were related to sexuality and whatnot uh, have been changed. But there was a time by the proclamation of the moral law of God, certainly in our own setting, there was some civil use of that. What's the third use? Yeah, rule of life for the believer. Okay, that is to show us how we can live a life that is pleasing to God. So those are some, so Murray's talking about moral law. He's reminding us moral law is abiding, moral law is written on the heart. Uh, Moral law was there prior to Sinai, uh, it's what convicts the consciences of unbelievers, etc. cetera. Uh, that's what he's talking about. And then he, when we use it here, we're talking about instructing primarily our own selves and our church and our life in any society in the world, how we are to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, which is what Titus tells us uh, we are to do uh, as believers. Now, having laid that foundation, uh, Murray begins with what are called the creation ordinances. So what are the creation ordinances? Okay, so uh, marriage, procreation, family. The Sabbath. Creation ordinances. Yeah, work or labor. Those are the primary you can get into, then these, these overlap into matters like the, what's commonly called the dominion mandate uh, and those kinds of things. But before we get there, and I'm going to be teaching, God willing, next week, and we'll get a bit further into the creation ordinances then. I want to ask some questions relating to the account of creation. And what does our understanding of creation and hence our understanding of who we are as people, how does that affect us in regard to ethics or principles of conduct? Or to put it another way, 
What difference would it make if Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 is not history, if it's not even theological history, if it's not true? If Moses or whoever wrote Genesis, people are going to argue, is merely trying to give an understanding as to why people are the way that they are, and he gives a a religious explanation rather than purely a biological explanation, and that he's wrong. What difference does that make in regard to our ethical standards? Okay, how so? So Paul makes, yeah, several times there are ethical arguments rooted in the creation account. So you're mentioning one of Paul talking about what difference does it make that Adam was made first and then Eve? Does, does Paul, well, Paul's going to make some arguments based upon that. And, that if, and if that's not history, if that's not reality, then it undermines the basis. You know, if I were to say, hey, we do things the way we do because of Paul Bunyan and blew the ox... You know, and, and brethren, that's why you need to, you know, be here on time, you know, because of, you know, remember what Paul Bunyan did with the, his axe in the woods, and you're like, why should that myth compel me to do anything? But if we say God made us, so... Yeah. But if God's the beginning, he's bigger than 13.9 billion whatever it is. Okay. Infinitely bigger. Right. So he can do anything that he wants. It shows his sovereignty over his own creation in chapters 1 and 2. All right. So, well, so maybe part of what, if I'm going to just riff on that for a minute, part of that is <clears throat> if God made us, God has a right to tell us what to do. And if God didn't make us, or there's not no God, then again, what does that say about our ethics? What does that say about our arguments? Think about almost every ethical argument we make as Christians. Think about what, what do you believe? What do you think is right? And how many of those things are rooted in creation? This is the question. Ted. Yeah, I mean, you could. You, I mean, some would say that they are bio, they are uh, evolutionarily necessary if men are going to live in society, and that's that. You know, so that's the argument of the evolutionists as to why there's religion as, and as to why the people need commands. Because if anybody's going to live in community, they need some kind of a higher standard of right and wrong. So, but I agree. I mean, I agree with you. I mean, you know, because of the question. Uh, of the atheist is, can you be good without God? And, of course, the answer you have is you don't even know what good is without God. It's not, not only can you not be good without God, you don't even know what good is. And, interestingly, even for many liberal people who would deny, and conservative people who would deny these things, their idea of goodness is nonetheless rooted very often, in, 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 to some degree or other, in biblical ethics. If you want to read a great big tome on that, 
there's a book called uh, Dominion by a man named Tom Holland. And for all you younger people, not Spider-Man. Uh, uh, a, uh, a British historian and, and philosopher uh, about that in which he traces as an agnostic or as an atheist the reality that everything he regards as good and moral and pure is rooted in Christ uh, and, and, the, and the apostolic teaching. It, 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 the only reason we have an idea of what is good is because of what Christianity has brought into the world. But again, so let's, what are some of the major ethical issues facing us in our day? What are some of the big things? <laughs> All right, so how many of you agree that that is LBGTA plus or whatever it is now? And again, I'm not, I, I, I honestly cannot keep up with it. I'm, I'm not trying to be pejorative in that. What is your argument? If you, if you argue against the, the primary trends, how much of your argument is rooted in Genesis being history? All of it. Lose creation and you lose. This is, I'm trying to argue here. This is why this matters. All right. What else? Abortion. Euthanasia. Why do we believe, can you come up with an, are there atheists who oppose abortion? Yes. Do they oppose it for the reason you do? Are there, are there, are there good sociological reasons why abortion is detrimental to the building up of a cohesive society? Yeah, we can make arguments about that, but those aren't. That's not our primary argument. Jim, did you have something you wanted to? I would just say, uh, overarching authority. Jesus is king, okay? And everything else has to be followed by him. Well, but again, we've got to get back to the reality of Jesus coming into the world is rooted in what happens in Genesis 3. There's no Genesis 3 if there's no fall. There's no need of a redeemer, no promise of a redeemer. And if he, if he comes to, to restore uh, ultimately those things, again, so we're just, I'm just, I appreciate that. I think you're, you're right. But we're getting back to asking, I just want to ask this question for now. How, my, how many of our ethical issues facing us today are rooted in the reality of creation? And if you don't have the creation account, if you don't believe that God made Man, and we get into this in just a minute. How much of this? So I, I, I hope we're beginning to feel this. That if this is why this matters, and if you don't have creation and the creation ordinances as a solid foundation, that again we can marshal other arguments as to why this or that is bad for people. It makes them sad. It makes them. Lonely, it isolates them, it destroys their body, it destroys their health. We can make all of these arguments. And, and those are good supportive arguments. But we have to remember that for us as believers, our principles of conduct are rooted in something more fundamental than that. And, and we can't be ashamed of that. So we do have a transcendent ethical standard that the world doesn't have. We may, we may be able to come to agreement with those of other religions and, and even those with no religion at all. 
But we need to ensure that when we make arguments as the people of God and when we speak with divine authority and we say, thus says the Lord, that we are rooting it uh, in these things. So let's ask, I'm going to ask a couple of other questions and I want some more feedback. So I'm asking, does the account of creation matter in regard to ethics or principles of conduct? What is or what are the alternatives to the doctrine of special creation? Right, so if Genesis is myth, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are myth, the embarrassment of a worldwide flood and you know, Adam and Eve and a woman being created out of the rib of a man, a man being formed out of the dust of the earth. <laughs> it all seems absurd, obviously, to the world in which we live. But what, are, what is their alternative? All right, billions of years plus what? Plus chance. So it's either we are specially created created by God, or, or we're not. And it may help us to understand why, why is it that of all the books in the Bible, you generally don't have seminars on why Ecclesiastes isn't true or why Obadiah is a problem. And a lot of people don't really have, you know, like certain aspects, at least as best they, if they really read it, the Sermon on the Mount, whatnot. Oh, I love the Sermon on the Mount. No, you don't. <laughs> Have you ever read, you actually read the Sermon on the Mount? Have you read the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Do you understand what Jesus is saying about himself? Well, I, I don't like that part. It didn't, but didn't he say something about not judging? I like that part. Uh, you know, they like part of it. But people don't generally war against that. Why do they war and rage against the beginning of Genesis? And the question is, is it simply science? Is that simply because Daryl, you said you're a scientist? There are there are scientists and uh, you know, have more than a few brain cells who believe. And the question is: Is there something more insidious involved in the attack on Genesis? So again, we're asking: What are what happens when the foundations are destroyed? What do we gain? when we believe, again, that there is not only a God, but a creating God who made man in his own image, right? So this is, this is why I, I just want to spend the time today focusing on this. What difference does it make in regard to our thinking about these things, if, again, if there is no God who creates and who acts and who speaks? And I want to under, underscore, I said this a moment ago, we need the word of God to guide us in our thinking as believers. But we also, we need to not be ashamed of it in making our cultural stand. Brethren, don't be ashamed to say, the Bible says. Don't be ashamed to say, in the beginning, God created. They may laugh. But if we lose that, we, we really don't have, oh, then we're just left to sputtering arguments and trying to come up with a better rationale. If your ultimate hope in, in, this, in a class like this is that I'm going to provide you with a whole list of alternative things outside of the Bible to stand as our authority, 
then you're going to be really disappointed uh, in this. We need to not be ashamed of our Savior and of his word. Now, again, we may use more than the word. It's okay to marshal other arguments. We may use more than the word, but we must not be ashamed to say, here I stand, so help me God, I can do no other. And this is why I stand where I stand. This is why we can't budge on these issues. Again, an atheist may have valid reasons to oppose abortion or gender reassignment surgery, particularly of the very young. I know atheists that do. But their arguments are not my arguments. I may agree with their arguments, but my foundation is different than theirs. We may share a similar outcome, but we do not share the same ethical foundation. Ours is special creation and an infallible revelation from a God who lives. And so I do want to say this. We need to, we're going to again get into, we're going to try to get into the weeds here in the, in the days and weeks ahead. But we need to understand this. Again, we're laying this foundation. I think differently, and you think differently post-conversion than pre-conversion about a host of things. And so we cannot and must not dismiss as well the the dynamics of conversion on our ethical standard and practice, even with the understanding that not all believers live up to their standard. The Bible tells us regarding the natural man in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, this, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God. And what are the next words? Nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them. Because they are spiritually discerned. So when we get frustrated sometimes. That somebody is not able to see what is now clear to us. Remember the reason why it is clear to us. Is because we are no longer carnal or natural men and women. But the spirit of God has worked something in us. We hold what we hold. Not just because God said so but because the God who said so has subdued our hearts by grace. And so when we are frustrated that the blind cannot see and the deaf don't hear, no matter how, you know what we do, right? When somebody says, when they're deaf, we shout louder. Or when we speak a language different from them, we slow it down, right? I said, and they say, no habla inglés. <laughs> Sorry, I said... Where, I know, you know, we, we have to understand we're speaking sometimes a different language. What we, we are saying, taking it out of the realm of human language, what we are saying is right and true, but understand that the reason we embrace it is not just because it's true. It's because the God of truth has opened your heart to truth. So again, as those who embrace the reality that we have been made 
in the image of God, we're going to begin to ask what ethical and moral issues flow from that. So I'm going to ask a very, I'm going to ask a very simple question. So what does it mean to be a human? Is, any, is everybody here a human being? Do, do you believe that? Oh, okay. All right. Is, is my Adrian, my little pit bull, is she a human? Oh, no, okay. No, not yet, never will be, right. So what makes a person a person, no matter what color, no matter what their language, no matter what their size, no matter what their ability, what is it that makes them human as opposed to merely animal? All right, so God created us in his image. So we're image bearers of God. All right, so here's, the, here's the, maybe the, the question. We, so I, everybody agree with that? Everybody, if he's a Christian, y'all affirm and amen that. What does that mean? What does it mean when you say to somebody, they're precious? All right, we state it because they're an image bearer. You shouldn't kill that infant because... It's an image bearer. It has Down syndrome. You should abort it. No, even with Down syndrome, he or she's an image bearer. What is it that makes them, when somebody says, well, what, is, what do you mean by that? So, In creation, God made three, three things. He made the angels, their spirit, and our bodies. And they don't make their bodies and our spirits. He makes us human beings on a combination of both body and spirit. Okay. So what? Go, go ahead, Jeremy. I think it's a lot of things, but the main ones being that we're reasonable. We have reason. We have a will. We have morality. Um, we're personal. Things like these are characteristics of being human beings. So okay. Uh, do you know anybody who's immoral? Right. Do you know anybody who's irrational? I'm, I'm just asking. I'm, these, I'm just trying to help us think. All right, how many of you has a dog that loves you? How many has had a dog or a cat who has loved you? You're convinced they loved you. How many of you ever seen an animal be guilty? Ashamed. Angry. Afraid. Loyal discerning, thinking, disciplined. You see what I'm saying? So I'm just trying to help us. All right. See, I, I can, I, I question, I, I don't, Monica said that, I, what do animals have? How does, how did my cat know when I was in high school that I was broken hearted? And came and scratched on my door and came to cuddle on me. How did they know? You know, I'm just asking, these are interesting questions to ask. So he said, okay, we share some of these, I think we share some of these traits. And again, whether we anthropomorphize and the dog, because you want to know, what are they really thinking? Are they really thinking he loves me? Or are they thinking, why aren't you feeding me? You know, the <laughs> candy? 
Okay. Right, right. Where they give some biological. But we are special, right? So here's my question: What is it distinctly that makes a person a person? And I, I recognize some in the past when I have thought through some of these things, I have thought in terms of even that we're creative, we make, we, 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 we interact, we worship, we, you know, whatever, whatever the case might be. And even recently was drawn to, to really think hard on this when I did the funeral for that little girl out in Seattle back in June. One-year-old girl suffered severe brain damage at birth. She never talked. She, she had a trach tube. She blank stare little brain activity, and yet to say that her life matters and she was made in the image of God as much as a lively, creative, intelligent, so-called productive member of society is. And to say, I believe that. The world looks at that and go, how in the world can you make that comparison between somebody in a vegetative state and somebody who is alive and active. And, we, and again, so I, need to be, I needed to be careful that I not define image-bearing in ways that, that uh, would make it sound like somebody like that is not an image-bearer because they are an image-bearer. So try to break, Will, what, what's your thought? If you just say to somebody, Will, what makes a person, so what makes a human a human is that they are a biological entity made in the image of God. A living biological entity made in the image of God. In a way, a horse, as magnificent as a horse is, as glorious as a blue whale is, they're made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God in a way that they aren't. So what would you give as your... Are you telling me my dog's not going to heaven, Will? Your allergies, your allergies will be healed. I think C.S. Lewis said, not all cats are going to heaven, but mine is. I think he said something like that. Um, no, I think, Will, I think you're really touching on, when it gets down to its most basic fundamental issue, we, we have a soul that will never die. A human being has a soul that will spend eternity in heaven or in hell. And that's not a question we ask about squirrels or deer or anything else uh, that we say that about humanity. Right, right, he took on human flesh. Right, well, because he, he came for us. He didn't right. come, he didn't simply come, though, though his death had ramifications for all creation, he identifies as human with, with true human flesh. So that, 
Go ahead, Tim. Yeah. I do think we may be able to get into some of these biological matters when it does come to the image of God. And again, generally speaking, versus in a fallen world. Why do we have disabilities and other things like that? It's because we live in a cursed world, and it's amazing there's not more of it than there is because the world is cursed. But there are something about communication, thought, rationality, creativity. I think those things are included in the image of God, even if they are shared to some degree with certain animals, but certainly not to the degree uh, that they are in, in, huma- in humanity. Jim? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. But there's an ultimate offness there. We have an offness from God from the very beginning where he expects something. Right, and, and there is eternal consequences if it's not, in a way, again, if a, if a dog acts more like a cat or a cat acts more like a dog. It's, it's, but when a person doesn't act like a person, when a person doesn't fulfill... Yeah, I think you're right. With in, in image-bearing and in being created... This is why God's, God, we can say to somebody who's not even a Christian, listen, you may not be a Christian, but God is your maker. God is your lawgiver, and God is your judge. Now, he offers to be your savior as well. But of all humanity, which is why we, whether they can embrace that and, and they're still accountable for it and responsible for it, even in their natural state. Right, there is a suppression of truth and unrighteousness, right? And we're seeing that more clearly in our society than we did 30 years ago. And it's, it's, it is, it's happening with a rather shocking rapidity, and these things are joined together. What's happening culturally goes hand-in-hand hand with a denial of God as creator. And the only way, again, you can embrace certain things ethically or morally or reject certain things morally or ethically is when you deny the reality that God is creator. And so in a, in a society that increasingly says, when, you, when the, the polling, and I can't remember what the latest polling data is, for 50 years ago, how many of you believe God created us? It's 80%, 90% of Americans. Today it's down to about 30%. And so again, that's why our ethics are tied into this a theology of the creation. All right. So in asking this question, we define even what it means to be human. Why does human life have value? So this touches on things like abortion and euthanasia, right? So it's tied into, well, because why is murder particularly wrong? And why must murder be met with a just penalty? Because made in the similitude of God, right? 
you take that away and say, well, what's the difference between killing a man and being Tim Cannon over there? Now, some people would say he's a man, he's a murderer, you know, with uh, all that chicken blood on him. But, what, but we, we, you, you laugh at that. I, I could say that in some places. There wouldn't be any laughter. There'd be tears and outrage because they don't understand the distinction that, because they want to say almost that one is superior, and in this case the animal superior to humanity because they're not as broken as we are, as violent as we are, as ugly as we are, whatever else that comes also with part of being human in a fallen world. So we're going to ask again, what does it mean to be, to be made in the image of God? That's why does life have value? All right, let's also just touch on briefly, and we're going to get into the creation ordinance with this. What does it mean to be male and female? I mean, this is, a, this is one of the fundamental pressing questions. And we have gotten to a place, again, as a society... Where there are a host, I mean, it's, it's getting to be a gotcha question from people on the right to say to somebody who wants to <clears throat> run for political office, can you tell me what a woman is? Well, I don't want to get into, I don't want to have to try. We've lost our ability even to understand that there is a biological difference. But we're going to also ask the question, are, are there any essential differences outside of biology about what it means to be male and what it means to be female? Is there anything more to being a man versus a woman that goes beyond the biological? Now, again, the biological matters. I mean, this is, again, this is part of what is facing our society at this time, and our time is up. All right, so we're going to put, I'm going to have to stop there. Uh, I've, I've seen some kids. I thought, oh, it's a bunch of visitors with their kids, and it's kids coming out of their Sunday school. All right, well, let's pray, and we'll pick this up, God willing, next time. We'll take as much time as we need. Charlie's going to deal with uh, marriage, and some of this is going to lead into that in the, in the weeks ahead. All right, well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to have our, our hearts and our minds stimulated to to think and to strive to understand and to answer some of these questions that face us, particularly at this time in our history as a church and as a nation. Help us, living God, to think your thoughts after you, to be wise according to your instruction. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.